Well, let me invite you to take out your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're making our way through uh, the Ten Commandments. Let me say a word of welcome to those that are watching online. We're glad that you've tuned in with us uh, as well. And we've been working through the Ten Commandments. Today we come to the Sixth Commandment, so you know where we are in our sermon series along the way. Uh, And we are as a church, and I, I really hope you're taking this to heart. We're trying to think about memorizing these in a reference form because the the Ten Commandments are what the Lord has given us as the conduct of the kingdom. And in fact, the Lord Jesus would tell us in the New Testament, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so the way we express our love to God is following what he has said, seen throughout the scripture. And the Ten Commandments are really the anchor point of all of the other commandments we find in the Bible. And so we we started with the idea of learning Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The reason why we memorize that, the reason why I say it every week is because it is it is imperative that we remember that the 10 commandments are given from a position of God's grace not a demanding obedience. Yes, the Lord wants us to obey. He calls us to obey, but only after he had rescued the nation of Israel. Only after he has saved us and redeemed us, now he calls us into a life of obedience. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. Because if the Lord had told the nation of Israel, follow these Ten Commandments, and when you get them right, I'll come rescue you, we nor they would ever be saved. But because he gives grace, and then through that grace, our response is, Lord, what would you have of us? And so we have these ten commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. And today we add to it the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Now the sixth commandment seems to be one that you would think is very clear. You shall not murder. At face value, the definition, the sentence, the way it's written, it seems like it would be pretty easy to understand. You shall not murder. In fact, in all of human history, there has been this high view of the taking of life. Now, It's not always been given out equally among people, but in every society, the taking of life has been in some form or fashion viewed as a high crime or a certainly a grievous event. And so the question we have to ask is, what does the Lord mean when he says you shall not murder? Is self-defense included in that? What about abortion and suicide and euthanasia? What about negligence or murder of overlooking something? What does it mean when he says, you shall not murder? And then, what do we do with Jesus in the fifth chapter of Matthew when he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who commits anger in his heart is convicted of murder. So maybe, maybe, while this commandment at face value is fairly easy to read, and certainly among us there is a common definition of what we think the Lord is prohibiting when he says you shall not murder, we must survey the scripture and see where is the verse applied, how is it used in the nation of Israel and in the New Testament so that we can have a full biblical view of what does it mean to not murder. Now, I 
probably am on safe territory when I look at this crowd and think to myself, this is not a sin that we're battling necessarily all the time. I'm not looking at grievous murderers, if you will. But that doesn't mean that the law doesn't apply to our heart. For the Ten Commandments are a heart situation before they are a hands situation. The Spirit is examining our life. And so the question will be, what do we do with the commandment, you shall not murder? Let's read together uh, Exodus chapter 21 through 13, just again to, to hear the words of the Lord given in this law. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Now, I told you this, and let's stop there. I, I told you this when we began this very first sermon series, but the profoundness and the beauty of that sentence is marvelous. The God of all creation chooses to speak to us. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to intervene. He doesn't have to speak to us. He doesn't need us, but he speaks to us. What a powerful thing to know that the God of the Bible is the God who speaks. What a wonderful truth for us. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For, the Lord, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother, that the days may be long in the land, and that the Lord your God is giving you. And now our commandment for the week. You shall not murder. Would you pray with me? Father, help us uh, see in this commandment uh, that there's much more here than what we do with our hands. There's much more here than the prohibition of just physically taking a life, Lord. There is more to the heart uh, of it. Examine us, Lord. Teach us. In light of what has transpired throughout our nation over the last few weeks, Lord, may we examine our hearts. Show us, Lord, by your word what we're called to be. Not, not what, we, what we think we should be, not what uh, the, the political world would tell us, what, what the news would tell us. Lord, what do you have of us? Father, we know from the word of God that when you call us into salvation, we are citizens of heaven. It's a different kingdom. It comes with a different standard. It comes with, with your commandments. And so, Lord, help us. Help us see what it means to be people who, who don't commit murder. What, what do you want from us, God, that we may be conformed? And Lord, as we study this text, I pray, Father, you'd give us a high view of who you are. A high view of how precious life is and what a gift it is. And Father, a conviction over the places where we have looked down on the gift that is life. Father, bless us now. Give us clarity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
as I said in the introduction, it seems like a pretty straightforward commandment. You shall not murder. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's only two words. The whole sentence is made up of two words, which is translated no kill or no murder. It's, the, it's very simple and straightforward. And so at face value, it seems pretty easy. But then we start to deal with real life application. You and I know that we study God's word, we want to know God's truth, but then we have to walk around applying it to the real world. We have to take it out of the eternal text and put it into the fragile human experience and live it the way God's called us to live it. We have to apply it in a biblical manner. We have to have the application that matters. So when we read this uh, commandment, this sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, how do we apply it to uh, abortion or suicide? How do we apply it to self-defense? How do we apply it to, to topics that range in those areas? And so what is the question? But I want to answer a question before that. Before we look at the legality of murder and what the Bible teaches, I want us to understand that there's a question that must be deeper than thou shalt not murder. Before we can ask the question, what is the definition of murder? We have to ask the question, why is it wrong? I mean, think about it. We kill a lot of things in our lives. I step on every ant I see. I've killed plenty of snakes. I love a good killed cow on my plate, right? We, we kill a lot of things. We, we take life all the time. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that they were constantly sacrificing animals. And so we, we understand the idea of taking of life. So the question is simply this, why is it so grievous to take a human life? Why is that such a big deal? Now, the evolutionist and the atheist would tell us there is no difference, that the taking of an animal is the same of taking of a human. But we know in our conscience that's not true. Society knows in its conscience that that's not true, even those who don't fear the God of the Bible. So the question is, why is murder, why is the taking of life something that sears our conscience? Well, brothers and sisters, that leads me to my first thought, and that would be simply this. I, I believe that the sixth commandment forces us to understand the meaning of imago Dei. The phrase is imago Dei. It's a Latin term. It means image of God. It has been what the reformers and church history would always use to describe the fact that people, that mankind, that humans are different than every other part of creation. Why? Because we, brothers and sisters, are made in the image of God. All people, all humans, all mankind is made in the image of God, which makes us different than anything else in God's creation. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we find this idea of imago Dei, this idea of made in the image of God. And this is what we find in the creation story. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh of the, of the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that is creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And then the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 exactly how he did that. He reached down in the dirt and he formed in the dirt and he blew the breath of life into it. So think about it for just a moment how special people are to God. Now, now let us be clear for just a moment. God did not need people. He is perfectly whole in his triune God. He had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've existed for all time. They will exist for all time. They are outside of time. They are perfect in every way. God was not lacking. Uh, God was not lacking playmates. He was not lacking someone to stroke his ego. Out of his abundant love, he decided to make us. It is just a gift, and that's all it is. A beautiful, wonderful gift. God did not need something 
else. He made us. But here's what's so beautiful about it. If you read the creation story, everything he made, he spoke. He spoke the stars into the sky. He spoke the waters into the sea. He spoke the trees to grow. He spoke the creepy things and the crawly things. And I'm going to ask him about mosquitoes when I get there. He spoke all of those things into creation. But when it came to mankind, he took his hands. He scooped up the dirt. And he breathed life into us. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters. Every single person is made in the image of the Creator. And you know what that means? That means every person has intrinsic value in them. They are worth the Creator's touch. And even when our rebellion ran against the Creator, what did He do? He put Himself in the form and the likeness of man and took on our sin and went to our cross and put Himself in the trenches of our death and experienced our judgment and laid in our tomb and rose from our grave. Why? Just so He could grab His image bearers back into His arms and say, now you are forgiven. Live with me forever. This is the beauty of the Imago Dei that every single person is made in the image of of God, that we are not like any other part of his creation. So one of the reasons, the overarching reason why murder, why death is so hard for us, so grievous for us, is because we know when a life is taken in a sinful and evil way, it is to go against the very image maker when the image bearer is destroyed. So it's to go against God. And so we have, in this commandment, the call to understand the sanctity and the beauty of life. Kevin DeYoung would write it this way. He would say, no matter people's race or ethnicity, how they vote, their health, their disabilities, their age, their infirmities, whether they are bothersome to others, every person has inherent worth and dignity since each one is created and represents God. Every person has the imago Dei representing God. They are made in God's image. There is no one that has ever been made that wasn't made in God's image. Every single created person is made in the image of God. This is why, brothers and sisters, when we see the child ripped from the womb in abortion, we are grieved because we know God made that child. This is why when we see the woman trafficked in sex slavery, we are grieved because we know they are image bearers. This is why when we see a man treated like a dog on the concrete with a knee in his throat, we are grieved because it's an image bearer. They're children of God. There are people made in the image of the Father. All people. Every person. The Bible will tell us in a few moments that God is clear about justice. He doesn't overlook sin. But we must take a real slow, deep breath before we come to judgments and slurs and anger when it comes to people. Why? Because they are the image bearers of God. They are the image bearers. Let us for just a moment stare at some image bearers. Imago Dei, the image of God, the people who look like him and made in his image. There is no phototype. There is no exact replica. They are all made in the image of God. They're all made as children of God. The very Imago Dei of God. Brothers and sisters, why 
Is the commandment to murder so grievous? Because when we take a life, we are going against the very Creator. Al Mola would write it this way. He would say, the, wrath, uh, the worth of human life is grounded in the Creator rather than the creature. See, we judge the worth of human life based on who they are, what they do, what they produce for society, how they behave. God bases the worth of, of human life based on the fact that He blew the breath into them. That He made them. We should view them this way. This is the call of all believers that we see that life is precious. The only way to understand the sixth commandment is to know that every single person is made in the image of God. In the image of God. Now, let's get to the second part of the sermon, and that's simply this. What does the sixth commandment teach us? And I would answer the question this way. The sixth commandment forces us to understand the meaning of justice. What does it mean to not murder? How does society deal with it? So, so what I'm going to do for just a moment is get a little technical with you as far as just giving you some categories we find in Scripture. We won't look them all up, but I want to show you how the Bible gives us a, a working definition of when it is prohibited to take life and when it is ordained by Scripture that taking life is justified or you have the right to do so. What does the Bible tell us? Where does it come from? And so let us for just a moment... Keep this in mind, but, but, but we should always go back to the first thought. Whenever we are called on to take life, even if it's by society, even if it's just, even if it's right, we should never, ever rejoice in the fact that the Imago Dei has been sullied or harmed because we are image bearers of God. And to take life is to scar the very image we are to proclaim. And so what does it tell us? Well, first of all, let, let's tell you what it doesn't mean. If you survey the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament and some of the New, you will find what the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit. The Sixth Commandment does not prohibit self-defense. Self-defense is in the Scripture. You, you are allowed to take life in the sense of self-defense. But, but let me be clear about what that means. If you were to look up Exodus chapter 22, verse 2 through 3, here's what you'll find. You'll find that there is this idea that if someone breaks in your home then you are allowed, and if you take their life, this was Israel's working law, and you take their life because you are threatened, then you shall not be put to death. That's what Ezekiel 22, excuse me, Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3 teaches us. But there's a sentence there that's interesting. It says, until the sun comes up. Now, what it means is, is simply this. If, if someone, and, and they're giving you one example of self-defense in the Scripture to help us understand it, but it literally means if someone is to break into your home, and it's dark, the sun's not up, and you feel threatened, and you can't understand, and a life is taken, then based on Exodus, your life would not be required. You would not be brought before the village and stoned to death. But, but, when it says before the sun comes up, it simply means, but if there's another course of action that you could have taken, that will be considered. And so let us just sit on that for just a moment. I'm not a pacifist in any shape of the form. I believe the scripture. I believe in protecting my family. But there is certainly a culture among us that always looks towards the most grievous way to stop something without thinking. And so we have to understand that, that yes, the scripture gives us that right. But we also must be really, really, really clear that we are going against the Imago Dei. And let us not worry with with thinking we, we could have done it differently. And so it prohibits this. But it does not. Self-defense is in there. Capital punishment is not prohibited by this. We see this all through the Old Testament. If you killed, you were killed. If you went against, you were taken out. 
Capital punishment is seen in there. Exodus chapter 22, excuse me, Genesis 9, 6, where Cain kills Abel, and he says there's a blood guiltness, right? That you're, you're liable for this blood, that it's seen throughout the, the country. So capital punishment is there. Romans 13, the Bible tells us in Romans 13 that the government wields the sword of God. That's a paraphrase. But God has given to government the right to enact justice when it comes to this. In fact, we find in, in Exodus chapter 21, in verse 12 through 14, those famous words, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, people have heard uh, Gandhi say, Gandhi is famous for saying, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And that sounds sweet and warm and fine, but it doesn't make really much sense. Uh, because let's put it this way. If you take my life, uh, then, then there ought to be some sort of punishment by society for that. But if you steal my car, I should not be allowed to put you to death. So when God gives us the eye for an eye commandment, he's actually given us justice equally, mercifully. In the ancient world, many of the tribes that lived around Israel would not do an eye for an eye. If a king or a pharaoh was somehow degraded by the way you looked or acted, he would take your head off. That's not an eye for an eye. That's not justice. That's sin and rebellion. So when the Lord gives us the commandment of eye for an eye, he's giving to society just and equitable law. Now the difference here is we are sinners and we do not always apply eye for an eye equally. And so we need to be in much prayer over this. But capital punishment is a part of the fabric of God's design. It's there. It's seen. Um, we can also see throughout the Scripture that this does not prohibit just war. War is seen throughout Scripture. God commanded the nation of Israel to bring judgment on the pagan nations through war. We find that war is necessary. We're thankful for those brave men and women that stopped Hitler from marching across the world and wiping people out. We're, we're thankful for those moments where society step in. Again, this is Romans 13. God's given to government the right. But we should say that it's just war. That if at all possible, society should live at peace. That's the Scripture. If it's possible, live at peace. But we know when sin runs rapid, God gives the authority to government in order to stop those things. So this commandment does not prohibit just war. But before we leave this idea of prohibit and look at the definition seriously of what it means, let, let us also say this. You can look through Scripture and find many places where it's not applied. I think of Cain. The very first murder in the Bible, Cain killed Abel. And what did the Lord do? Let him live. He gave him mercy. It is not always a blanket thing in the Scripture. We see where people are let off the hook. They're, they're given God's mercy. Sure, there's punishment and there's crime. But there's not always this idea. There's much grace given through the Bible. But I'm thankful. And you know why I'm thankful about this? It's because the Lord takes into consideration through all of these examples through Scripture, the heart, the intention, and the situation. He doesn't just drop in and say, well, that person died, this person has to die. He looks at the heart. He surveys the su su subject. He is wise in his counsel. So now we get to the crux of the matter. What does it mean to commit murder? What's the Bible teach us here? Well, let me give you just a couple of those definitions so that you will understand. The Old Testament word here for killing, you'll see in the 10th and the 6th commandment, is a Hebrew word that's not used very much. When you survey the Old Testament and you find the word die or kill, there's a lot of other words that are used, but when it comes to murder, the Hebrew word that's used here means violent rage or selfish taking of life. And so it's very clear that when the commandment says, thou shalt not murder, it means 
that if you take someone's life in violent, angry rage or for selfish reasons or to promote yourself or in a grievous way, you have broken the commandment. You have physically broken the commandment. Now, how does this apply to society? Let me give you a couple examples from Scripture. I know we're kind of getting technical, but I want you to know we need to have a working definition of what does it mean for a Christian to view death and murder. First of all, we should see that this clearly includes suicide. Suicide is a sin. It's grievous to God. To take your own life, to murder yourself is wrong. That's not mean to say, that's loving to say. We don't want anyone to go that route. In fact, there are seven recorded suicides in the Bible, and all seven of them are from shame and dishonor, and they're looked down on on God. And when Jonah and Job, both noble men of God, ask God, please take my life, God is not pleased when they ask that question. It's wrong. Now, just for a moment, let me deviate from the sermon to give you what is also a very heretical teaching. Suicide does not banish one to hell. That is a false teaching that originated in the Catholic Church, and it is not the gospel. Because Jesus says, through the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Romans, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't mean that when someone does that, they're automatically lost their salvation. Brothers and sisters, if we could lose our salvation, we would do it all day long in every direction. And so let us not leap to that. Let us not give that judgment. But we should be very clear, it is sin. It is murder. It is wrong. We would also say abortion is sinful and murder. It is breaking this commandment. Why? Psalm 139. I have knitted you in my mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You, you remember in Exodus where I was telling you about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? You know where the Lord gave that commandment? He gave that commandment dealing with a woman who is pregnant. It literally says in the text there that if a woman is injured, if she's harmed and the baby is lost, then the one who harmed her should be put to death. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Bible, even in Exodus, saw the womb as life. Way before we had science and technology to see wiggling feet and toes and which gender it will be. Some of you went through the process of determining whether yours will be a boy or girl before it was born. I asked my wife one time, I said, can we be surprised? She said, no, there's too much to buy. (laughs) We have that science now. But in the scripture, God knew. It's murder. It's wrong. Euthanasia. The taking of those who are seen now as terminally ill. Or society has deemed them unworthy or unnecessary. Let, let me give you just a, 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 just a grievous fact. In 2011, Holland became the first country to sanction euthanasia. That is the, a doctor-assisted suicide. It's allowing those that are terminally ill or either those that have reached the end of their life and desire to just go to sleep and not wake up, they have allowed them. Now, here's what's so sad about that. 2011, Holland is the first country to enact euthanasia. Do you know there in World War II, the doctors in Holland were asked by the Nazis when they conquered that area to put to death the cancer patients that were terminally ill or stop treating the elderly so they would die. And the doctors of Holland stood up to the Nazis and said, we will not do that. In one generation, they saw it from a crime, a war crime, to an act of mercy. How sinful. How terrible. Brothers and sisters, death is harmful and it hurts and it is our last battle, but we do not get to snuff it out and take someone's life. The Lord has numbered our days and He has set that death would be the final war that we walk through. In fact, we read in Psalm 41.1, blessed are those who have regard for the weak. It's murder. It's wrong. We're not to take. There's a big difference between stopping treatment and terminating life. And it's wrong. 
Now, what else do we find in this? We also find that this commandment means there's no such thing as vigilante justice. When you read the Old Testament, the, the idea of stoning, the idea of bringing someone charges for murder, the idea of eye for an eye was always done at the village gates with the village elders under the watch care of society. When you get to the New Testament, it's done under Romans 13, the government which God establishes. There is no place in Christian world where we believe justice should be taken in our own hands. There is no place where vigilante justice should work because the Bible is very clear that God desires for it to be done in the community and in the society. And when one person takes it upon themselves to act outside of the authority they've been given, it is wrong. This is why we are grieved when those who are given positions of authority abuse them and take someone's life because they went and took justice in their own hands and that is not of God the Bible teaches us very clearly we are not anarchists we are not those who run against the organization of society so this commandment means we do not go after vigilante the commandment also includes the idea of accessory to murder we find that David is guilty of murder when he sends Uriah off to battle to die. He didn't throw the stone, he didn't cast the spear, but he is guilty according to the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel. Why? Because he was an accessory to murder. He let it happen. We also find in the book of Kings, King Ahab is guilty of murder because he was negligent. In this, he had the power to stop it, but he let it continue. He could have stopped Jezebel from killing the one who owned the vineyard, but he stayed out of the way and let her do her thing until he was dead and he could take over the vineyard. And in Kings, we find that Ahab is condemned. Why? Because he had the authority to stop it and he did not. So we know that those who have the authority to stop murder and don't step in to do so are guilty. And then finally, we see in Scripture, and I know I'm giving you lots of reasons for and against what murder is, but we need to have this biblical idea of, of working. The last one is negligence. It's so interesting that in the Old Testament, you'll read uh, in the book of Exodus that, uh, and in Deuteronomy that when one was building a house, it was your responsibility when you built your house to put a rail around your roof. It was your responsibility to put a parapet around your roof because roofs were used for social gatherings, for hanging laundry, for bathing. And so it was your responsibility when you built a house to build a roof. And in fact, the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy that if your neighbor comes over and falls off your roof and you don't have a rail, you're guilty of murder by negligence. It also records in that same passage of Scripture that if you have a bull that jumps a fence and gores someone to death, but you didn't know the bull would do that, you're not liable for their death other than paying the penalty and giving them the meat from the bull. But if you knew your bull, and here's a word I'll make up, was gory, and he was prone to gore, and he gored someone to death, then you were liable and put to death. Negligence is part of God's commandment. See, I'm so thankful for this. Why? Because God doesn't just say, y'all work it out. This is murder. Because if he left it up to us, every society would go to Hitler would think he was justified if we left it up to us. And so what does God do? He says, let me, let me give you some guidelines. Let me give you some rules. Now, here's how I want to close with this last part. Because I realize everything I just told you is pretty technical. This is what the Bible says about abortion and suicide and, and government and justice and murder and all that. And, and I, again, I, I press in here and think to myself that I'm looking at people that don't really battle this. You don't seem like the people that go into vigilante justice. You don't seem like the type of people that are promoting euthanasia. We certainly are advocates for life and not, and not the taking of life. And so how does this commandment actually apply to me tomorrow? How, how do I deal with this commandment on Monday? Well, the first one I think I've already answered in the sense of we should have a worldview, a biblical worldview of what it means to uh, fear life, 
and walk that way. But, but here's where I want to take you for this last one, and that's simply this. The sixth commandment forces us to understand the depravity of our heart. And here's what I mean. In Matthew chapter 5, long about verse 20, 21, 22, right in there, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the very famous sermon, Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus takes his disciples and sits them down and begins to teach them at length. And he oftentimes references the Old Testament and then he tells them what the meaning really is because the history of the Jewish world had twisted the definitions to mean what they wanted them to mean. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, this is what Jesus says about the sixth commandment. He says, you've heard it said that those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's everything I just explained to you. But now look what Jesus adds on to it. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now think about what Jesus does. Jesus says the commandment thou shalt not murder is not so much about what you do with your hands, but how you see and feel and work in your heart. He says it's this way. You may not take up your hands and strangle anyone, but in your heart you have done malice and anger and wrath towards them. And why is Jesus so, so pressing in on the way our attitude should be towards other people? Why would Jesus, who, who would look at us and say, good job, thanks for not taking anyone's life, why would he move it from a society issue to a heart issue? Because Jesus knows in the depravity of our heart lurks anger. And the depravity of our heart lurks judgment. So what does Jesus know? Jesus knows that every single person, listen now, I'm almost done, don't miss this. Every single person you will walk past, see on the news, every single person you will uh, interact with at work and at home, every single person that is the complete opposite of the way you think, look, and vote, every single person is made in the image of God. And when you and I in our heart look at another person and we say to them, that worthless fool, that stupid person, that good for nothing, that one over there and that one over there, we are looking at God Himself and saying, I don't believe you made that one. I don't believe that one's important. You could have done without making that one, Lord. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at when He says, listen, murder may be with your hands, but it's always in our heart. And so he presses in on us and he says, do not be this way. John Calvin would put it this way. He would simply say these words. If you perpetrate anything by deed, if you plot anything by attempt, if you wish or plan anything contrary to the safety of your neighbor, you are considered guilty of murder. Brothers and sisters, this means every time that we have disregard for the special needs, for the elderly, Every time we cast aside the teenager that seems to be running as a prodigal, every racist thought that runs through our mind, every one of those things is murder of the heart, and they go against the imago day of God. And that's not good. That's sinful. That's breaking the sixth commandment. You may not murder with your hands, but our hearts are factories of death. We will go against the image of God. May, may we feel the weight of conviction. May we feel the weight of conviction when we, 
When we see uh, uh, people or the news or places or things, that they don't act or vote or move or spend or behave like we do. And we rile up with anger and we wish them harm and we wish them this and we wish them that. And we make all of these, these murders in our heart. And Jesus said, you're guilty. You, you want to know what is so neat about Jesus? There's a lot. But, but one of the things that's so neat about Jesus is that he knew that we were destined to die, and the only answer for death is life. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and what does Jesus say in John 1, 4? I am the bread of life. What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does Jesus say in John 3, 16? For God so the Lord that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The beautiful thing about Christ is he knows we are murderers in our heart and we carry a body of death, and yet he came so that we may have life. And he died our death, our murderous, six-commandment-breaking death, so that we might live. Jesus has reversed our body body of death into a body of life. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we might be pro-life, but you won't be pro-life until you're pro-Lord. You have to worship the Lord Jesus, the very giver of life, the creator of life, the one who's made all life, see all life is valuable, and know that God has made them. The apostle John would make this clear in 1 John chapter 3, 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. If in any part of your life you have looked down on, judged with malice, or committed murder in your heart and in your soul and with your speech and with your thoughts towards another image bearer of God, you are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, and John the apostle says in 1 John, you deserve hell. So we should not take lightly our thoughts and words towards other people. We should be grieved and convicted and thankful that the Lord Jesus died for us. I know what you might say. Pastor, you just don't understand. That person, that person that I work with, that person that, that's my neighbor, that person, and I, you just don't understand how vile they are. You don't understand how bad they are. You're right, I don't. But I do know that my Savior was spit on and yelled, Father, forgive them. I do know that when they came against Him, He said, Father, Forgive them, brothers and sisters. May we not go against the Imago Day. I, I can't fix the country, but I sure can love my neighbor. Would you pray with me? Father, we're going to stand and sing, Lord, and, and you deserve the honor and the praise. And this morning we've taken a, a commandment that looks very simple on, on the front. Don't murder. Seems pretty straightforward, but as we survey your scripture, as we look at your words, we realize it's much deeper. It's much deeper than what we do with our hands. Father, you're calling us to a life that's, that's much more than physical behavior. It's an attitude. It's a heart. Lord God, I, I pray that you would uh, shape us and convict us. Remind us that every person we lay our eyes on even those, Father, that seem to be an inconvenience, even those that seem to be uh, rebellious, even the wicked that we see, they're made in your image, formed with your hands. You blew the breath of life into them. Oh, God, 
may you build in us a deep understanding of Imago Day. Brother, sister, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. And I just want to ask you, Lord, how are you in dealing with people? We live in a society where it is feeding off of categories. You're in this category or that category. You, you vote this way. You spend this way. You, you behave this way. We're in a constant cycle of dividing people up. And so I just want to ask you a question and let it sit for just a moment. Instead of seeing people in the categories that the world tells us to do, is your first reaction when you see someone image bearer made by God? If that's not your first reaction, and oftentimes in my heart it's not mine, would you just sit for a moment and ask the Lord to forgive you? I'm going to pray for us and we're going to stand and sing and be dismissed and I invite you to make your way out so the next service can come in but if you want me to pray with you if you want to stay and talk for a moment I'll be glad to linger in the room I think it's pretty clear we need to become people who love the image bearers of God Father convict us shape us grow our hearts of compassion May we not look at categories. May we look at the Imago Dei. We thank you that Jesus has come to save us and forgives us of our sin, even the sin of murder we commit in our heart. And we know he is the answer, not only for our heart, but for our whole world. And so we pray we'd make much of Jesus. Father, bless us now as we sing to you because you are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing to Jesus?